0: Hey, everybody. It's Dave here. First episode of the new year. We took a break there to replenish, to reflect. You know, we recorded a few shows, banked a few, but they just don't seem topical considering what happened in Capitol Hill uh, in Washington, D.C. earlier today. We recorded a podcast earlier this morning with Professor James Whitman, James Q. Whitman. He is the professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale University. And I warn you, this is Almost nothing to do with food. We do talk about it at the very, very end, very, very briefly. And it's a continuation of a conversation we started earlier this year when we met Professor Jeffrey Ogbar of University of Connecticut, where we t- had a you know a really illuminating conversation about Black power, about Asian American communities and sort of the solidarity there and about white supremacy and how white supremacy was interwoven in the sort of fabric of America. And he recommended this book by Professor Whitman, Hitler's American Model, The United States and Making of Nazi Race Law. This is a, a, uh, (laughs) I never thought it would be a topical podcast for what happened today and what transpired today. But I, I think, it will make sense uh, when you listen to our conversation. Very grateful that Professor Whitman would join us. And I recommend that you read the book. It is not a light read by any means. And it's something that we should all reflect upon today when you see what happened today and the response to the domestic terrorists, the mob that stormed the Capitol today. And Hoping you all are staying safe and I will shut up and get into our conversation. Ying and I uh, with Professor James Whitman, professor of comparative and foreign law at Yale University, author of Hitler's American Model. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Ice Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new pure leaf blackberry iced tea that we have here at the Spotify studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a berry delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new pure leaf blackberry iced tea. Visit amazon.com pure leaf and enter 20 pure leaf. That's 20 pure leaf for 20% off your purchase of new pure leaf Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash pure leaf and enter 20 pure leaf. That's 20 pure leaf for 20% off your purchase of new pure leaf blackberry iced tea. Over the summer, we had uh, Professor Jeffrey Ogbar, uh from University of Connecticut on our podcast, and he mentioned a book that we sort of like couldn't believe that the, a book was like being written about this. Like I don't even know how to describe it, but like when he mentioned the title, I was like, "What?" And it was like I bought it the next day, and you know, it was Hitler's American Model: The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, and it's by Professor James Whitman of Yale University, who teaches comparative and foreign law. And it took me a little bit to finish reading it, and it felt a little bit out of my sort of comfort zone. And it was very unnerving, quite frankly, because I just didn't expect to learn so much of the history of American race laws and how it was adopted by Nazi Germany. And I didn't know about things like the one drop rule and things like this. It was very abhorrent and terrifying and something that I felt ashamed that I didn't know about. And I wanted to get a better understanding of the man behind the book who has a mastery of this. I am not the person that should be talking about this, but I wanted to learn about this simply because when Jeffrey Ogbar told us and reminded us that so much about American sort of daily life is based on white supremacy. I think we got a lot of comments from listeners saying like, well, is that really true? And it actually really is true. It's not hyperbolic. And it gave me some reference to read your book, to see how Hitler and Nazi Germany sort of studied and took bits and pieces and extrapolated it into one of the most horrific things that we've ever seen in world history. So I don't know because this is not something we normally talk about on this podcast, so I feel way out of my comfort zone, but I think it was super important that we get to speak to you about this. And um, I don't know how else to say this, but thanks for joining us, Professor Whitman.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. I, I don't know where to
0: begin other than what was the sort of genesis for you writing this book?
1: Well, I should say the research came as a surprise to me too, and a little bit of a shock. I didn't expect to find what I found when I did the research. I was, I mean, one knows, of course, that the U.S. had a well-developed system of race law in the middle of the 20th century, just as Nazi Germany did. And I was interested in the comparison. Honestly, I, I, I hadn't imagined that you'd see anything that looked like American influence on the Nazis, partly because, just to repeat your words before, it's a little bit shocking to imagine such a thing. Uh, but partly because the Nazis, one would have thought, didn't need to learn lessons from anybody else. You <laughs> know, uh, why would the Nazis have to go ask the Americans how to manage a racist order? Nevertheless, uh, that's what I discovered. I went, I, in order to do really what was supposed to be a comparative study and not a study of influence, I just began by pulling Mein Kampf off the library shelf, taking a look, in particular, uh, opening up opening to the, the chapter on race, law, and the state, you know, the main theoretical statement of Hitler's program in which Hitler declares that only one country has made even minimal progress toward the creation of a healthy race order, that being the United States of America. And I thought, oh my goodness, there's really something to track down here. And I began to track it down, the result being the book that you were kind enough to read. I mean, it's really quite astounding what turned up in the course of the search, the, I should say the book is, is not about the Holocaust as such. There are things to be said about the Holocaust. The, the book is about the Nuremberg Laws in the early 1930s. Can you
0: explain to the audience if they don't know what the Nuremberg Laws are?
1: So when the Nazis came to power, they didn't at first introduce a fully developed system of discrimination against Jews. In fact, at the very beginning, when the Nazis first came to power, they didn't target Jews as such. They, they targeted colored people, a phrase they may have gotten from American, from America, let's say more broadly. It's to be found in American law, but more broadly in America at the time. But even with regard to colored people, they didn't have a developed legislative program or anything like that. That took a while. The first really carefully elaborated statement of the Nazi race law program came in September of 1935 in what are called the Nuremberg laws, which Created a kind of second class citizenship status for Jews, uh, and also criminalized sexual relations between Jews and what the Nazis called Aryans. This was, of course, their version of white supremacy. Uh, and they used their own terms, meaning white supremacy, uh, in order to describe this Aryan population. The promulgation of the Nuremberg Laws marked the real beginning of the Nazi program, the official Nazi program of persecution at its full blast form. The Holocaust as such, that is, the mass murder of Jews and others. But of course, Jews, in particular for these purposes, didn't begin until after World War II had gotten underway. So that's quite a few years later. My book is about the influence on Nazi law of American law, and the Nazis didn't use law to engage in the Holocaust. Under cover of war, they just started killing. Now, it can convincingly be argued that the Nazis had a kind of American inspiration for the Holocaust as well. Hitler from an early date and other Nazis drew inspiration from the American expansion into the West and from the American treatment of, of Native Americans. And, and that played a, a role. Now, you don't want to say that it caused the Holocaust because, of course, causal stories are difficult to prove, but it played a role in the Holocaust. None of that, though, is the story that I tell in the book. My story is about how the Nazis went and borrowed from the American model they found uh, in putting together the Nuremberg Laws.
2: Professor, can I ask you a question? I, like Dave said, this is you know, we both read this book. I actually had my book club read this book as well. Uh, it's it's it is outside of our comfort zone. You know, it's a scholarly work. I noticed early in the book you you sort of speak directly to some of the existing literature on this subject on the relationship between American history, American race law, and the Nuremberg laws, Nazi law. I sense early in the book, like, you're kind of, like, arguing that much of, like, the existing thought on this is wrong. Is that is that fair to say? Like, was this, were you going out on a limb in writing this book? Were you challenging sort of the preconceived notions about America and and Nazism?
1: I don't know how much I was going out on a limb since I have tenure. What can they do to me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I was challenging some some well-established assumptions, let's call them. People had asked the question could there have been American influence? And the, the uniform answer was no. I mean, of course not. No, it could be. I just took that to be true when I began the research. You know, I asked around, uh, asked people who'd worked on the subject. And they said, no, nah, nah, there's nothing there. It just turned out that there, there was. The one thing that people had talked about, which is important as background to what I've done, which was, was well established and accepted, is that American eugenics had an influence on Nazi eugenics. And that's well-known, and it's clearly true, and it does play a role in the story that I'm talking about. It's just that the Nuremberg Laws involved, first of all, an active legislative program of discrimination, which went beyond just the theory of eugenics. But most importantly, the Nuremberg Laws involved, you know, things borrowed from Jim Crow and other American law, because not all of American race law targeted American blacks, targeted all sorts of populations— Notably, in particular, Asians played a huge role in this in the United States. And a lot of the targeting involved not eugenics as such, but just, you know, degradation, deprivation of meaningful citizenship, obstacles put in the way of full-scale participation in life. And, and so in that sense, this went well beyond the eugenics that people certainly all know about and that has been discussed.
0: I mean, there's a, there's a line in your book... I mean, you're right. Nevertheless, if America, too, was infected with race madness, what made the United States influential on the blood law was not its race madness, but the distinctive legal techniques that Americans had developed to combat the menace of race mixing. Here, once again, America was the global leader. And when you read stuff like that, you're like, what? What? Why are we not talking about this a little bit more? Because it's really shocking and terrifying and When we experienced this past summer and the systemic racism that we all sort of were reawakened to for most of us, it was like, wait, has really that
1: much changed since, you know, the 1920s and such? So, look, I mean, the first thing I would want to say in response is not exactly offering the objections that your listeners were offering to the white supremacy, characterization of white supremacy as supreme in the United States, because, of course... Boy, is there a lot of white supremacy. It is important to say that there have always been counter forces in the United States. And there's just, you know, there have been these two American traditions battling it out. And that's that was true in the 1930s, too. And that was true in the 19th century. And that goes back to the founding of the American Republic. What I do think is frighteningly true about the U.S., especially, of course, after the election of 2016, is that the white supremacist tradition looked like it was getting the upper hand or certainly was playing a much more unmistakable role in U.S. politics and U.S. policymaking than it had been for quite a while, for quite a while. Um, but, you know, the Nazis themselves were perfectly well aware that there was more than one tradition there in the U.S. and that the, the liberal tradition was fighting it out with the white supremacist tradition. And And, you know, many of the Nazis weren't sure which of these American tendencies was going to win in the end. Although, you know, naturally, they tended to root for the, the racist tradition.
2: <laughs> Can you give us a sense of that, that rooting or that kind of, like, for the listeners who haven't read the book, you know, what does it mean that the Nazis took some cues or inspiration? Like, what did that look like? They, there were trips to America, and there was sort of certain things that they admired in writings, right? Oh, you bet. I mean, so part of what they did was just to go into German libraries and look and see what they could find.
1: Um, there had been trips to America for quite a while. So when the Nazis not the sorry, when the Germans conquered Southwest Africa, so this was their great part of the imperialist venture and the conquest of Africa, they were interested in preventing or uh, if possible, criminalizing sexual relations between German settlers and the local populations. And at that time in the early 20th century, they went to the US to find out how the US did it. So it already went back that far. The Nazis, in particular, drew on the work of one guy, uh, who was a guy named Heinrich Krieger, who was a, a young Nazi who was a, an exchange student at the University of Arkansas Law School. I, I cannot tell you what he was oh doing my there, God. but you know he was actually quite a gifted scholar. He was good. He wrote about American race law, very insightful scholar. He wrote a, a big book called Race Law in America. He was particularly interested in the treatment of Native Americans, wrote a, a law review article about it. He was, a, he was a a smart guy. He prepared a memo that was used by the Nazis in their efforts to understand how American law worked. And he was their main source and a very reliable source. He was quite good at it. Their, their main source in the process leading up to the making of the Nuremberg Laws. But they also read lots of other studies and books and, you know, they're, Germans do a very thorough job when they do scholarship, and that includes Nazis. They, hit, they did their reading and found out what was going on.
0: I mean, the part in the book where they actually, a bunch of Nazis, got on a boat to sail to New York City. I don't know why I thought that was funny, but it was very, very funny to me.
1: Well, I tried to present it in a way that would engage the reader. <laughs>
2: But you tell you tell us. I mean, that's the trip that uh, I believe. Like the the Nazis arrived in New York Harbor. They flew the swastika, and there were protesters. And you tell a kind of an incredible story. And I, I'm hoping you can tell us now about a judge who ultimately, like through that trip, led to kind of the establishment of the Nazis as, like, the preeminent power in Germany. Uh,
1: well, yeah, so it's, it's actually two different trips. So the one you're talking about, is it happened a little bit earlier in 1935. But all of this stuff goes on basically in the city of New York over a period of a couple of months. And what happened in the summer of 1935 is that the Bremen, which was the pride of Germany, this was the fastest ocean liner in the Atlantic. It was a huge tourist attraction, really. The Bremen came and was in in New York Harbor, flying the swastika flag. Uh, They had opened up the ship for visitors, for tourists to come see, and a bunch of rioters climbed aboard and threw the swastika flag into the Hudson. This created a major diplomatic incident, a major diplomatic incident. So, you know, the, the Nazi press exploded, the Nazi government exploded, partly for reasons I guess I won't go into that have to do with internal Nazi politics. So I guess I'll just say briefly, the swastika flag was not yet the official flag of Germany, and the Nazis wanted an excuse to make it the official flag. Mm. So they, they just ate up this diplomatic controversy. It was great. Now, meanwhile, the Roosevelt administration was very eager not to have trouble with Nazi Germany. They were not, at the time, in the market for conflict. So they kept sending apologies, and, you know, kept trying to calm the waters, but what happened was that there was a local magistrate in New York uh, who was a Jewish guy, a wonderful character, who would, was in charge of whether or not to release the the rioters or to commit them to prison so that they could be tried. And he released them. He released them. He had no, I believe you could disagree with this, but I'm a lawyer and I looked through it. He had no good basis of law <laughs> for, for releasing these guys Uh, You know, in morality and justice, yes, it was the right thing to do, but there was really no basis for it. And uh, not only did he release them, he was, you know, he was like a magistrate. He's not really a judge. He issued an opinion, which magistrates aren't supposed to do, denouncing the barbarism of Nazism. And then things really exploded. And it was this event, the fact that this Jewish judge had released quote-unquote, criminals who threw the swastika flag into the Hudson River and all that showed disrespect to the German flag. That that was the, the occasion or the excuse for calling the Nuremberg rally at which the Nuremberg laws were passed. And in that sense, the you know, this great step, major step in the making of the Nazi race program, was officially involved, in the first instance, a rejection of, an American rejection of the Nazis, as it were, and a, and a direct personal attack on this particular Jewish judge. So... It's quite a story.
0: Can you elaborate on the points in American race laws that made the legal scholars of of Nazi Germany shudder and say to themselves, that is just too much. We cannot adopt these (laughs) these laws here in Germany. Oh, boy. Because that is the
1: most insane
0: thing Uh to think about.
1: It is the most insane thing to think about. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, And of the things I didn't expect to find, that might be right on the top of the list. That American race law went too far for the Nazis. Probably the most important example is when you already mentioned the one-drop rule and other related rules. So American states had, in particular, bans on interracial marriage and interracial sex. It's called anti-miscegenation. That's the American word for it. We, we invented that word, anti-miscegenation. I had to look
0: it up. I never heard of it before in my life. <laughs> you, know,
1: you sure would have known about it if you'd been an, you know, an ordinary American citizen 60 or 80 years ago. Everybody knew about I, it. I said to my wife, hey, this is what we're doing. We're miscegenating over here. <laughs> right. There you have it. You know, and, and in many states, I mean, this remained criminal offense. I mean, there was finally a case called Loving Against Virginia, I think in 1967, in which the Supreme Court finally said, no, you actually can't ban interracial marriage, but that's not that long ago, right? That's not that mm-hmm. long ago. The U.S. had all these statutes, not only banning interracial marriage, but criminalizing it. You know, threatening 10 years of hard labor. I think that was Maryland. If anybody should do this extraordinarily evil thing, having an interracial marriage. Well, because they had those laws and some others, they had to have definitions of, of who counted as a member of which race. I mean, you have to figure out, people come from complicated backgrounds. And so they, all of the states had law on this topic. And in particular, I think there were thirty of them with really active jurisprudence, and they had different definitions. The most extreme definition was the one drop rule, which held that any person with one drop of black blood counted as as black for purposes of the statutes. Not all the states were that extreme. Other states, you know, would One great-grandparent or one grandparent or something like that. So there were variations. The one-drop rule is the most shocking version of it. But in any case, all of these definitions went further than the Nazis were willing to go. And the Nazis in particular said of the one-drop rule, that's shocking. You can't do something like that. That's inhumane. (laughs) That's inhumane. It's inhumane. So... That's the prime example. Another very important example has to do with Jim Crow. So the Nazis were very interested, as you might imagine, with Jim Crow. In Jim Crow. I'm sorry. And there were a lot of Nazi debates about, do we want to bring Jim Crow here? Should we modify the Jim Crow? What are we going to do with it in Germany? But one thing that even the most radical Nazis insisted upon was that if you had Jim Crow, it should only ban interracial relations in public, but not in private. Said, so, you know, if you hang out and you start dancing with members of other races behind closed doors, that's fine. That that couldn't possibly bother anybody. It doesn't give offense in the eyes of the public. They said, unlike the Americans who banned it in private as well as in public. They said, that goes too far. You can't do that. we just worried about giving public scandal or something like that. So that's another example in which American law just amazingly, shockingly, went too far for the leading races of the mid-20th century.
0: I mean, what, when you discovered this research, what were you thinking, and how did you feel as a scholar, as an academic?
1: Well, you know, I mean, as an academic, if, if I said, gee, well, this is really a very important stuff. I should publish it. And of course, as an academic, you'll also think, publish it before somebody else does. I mean, you know. <laughs> uh, although, they, you know, they didn't see much danger of that. I mean, you know, you. It, I thought it was represented an important episode in American history As you mentioned before, I teach comparative law. It's also important for trying to understand how American law fits in alongside the legal systems of the rest of the world for a variety of reasons. I thought all that was important. I had no idea what was coming, though, with the election of 2016. So I handed in the final proofs on election eve, having no idea how the election would turn out. After the election turned out the way it did, all of a sudden this book seemed much, much more important for reasons you both have just already mentioned. I mean, you know, all of a sudden, this was not just a matter of, American history of 80 or 90 years ago, it was of an intense contemporary interest, and that transformed the importance of the subject.
2: Well, can you, would you mind speculating a little bit about why, you know, the prevailing wisdom was that there was no link? Why was it, you know, it seemed from your research like this was all right there. You didn't uncover some new codex that, you know, uh, unearthed new information that revealed this link. Why do you think People did not believe that there was causality or or inspiration drawn from American race law in in Nazi Germany.
1: So so let me just say quickly: I I try really hard not to say there's causality. I don't want to stand up there and
2: say (laughs) Hitler. I shouldn't say either because I don't even know what I'm talking about. You
1: know, I don't know whether that's true, and I doubt that it's true, right? So I mean, it's it's something a little bit less dramatic than causation. But anyway, why didn't people? Yeah, it's all over the place. Why didn't they talk about it? I think there are two reasons. One is Americans just didn't want to believe such a thing could be true. Probably, though, the more important reason has to do with the attitude of Germans, Hmm. because Germans, you know, although it's all there when you look at the uh, everything I looked at, it's in German, (laughs) and you know, and you have to be pretty familiar with the German language and and with German law to follow what's going on in all these. Sources. So the Germans were in many ways the natural folks to talk about all of this. They didn't, and they still don't like to, although, you know, people have not attacked the book, but they don't want to talk about it in Germany. And they don't want to talk about it because in the aftermath of the horrific Nazi experience, the, you know, completely understandable, orthodox view in Germany is Germans alone are responsible for what happened. We will never suggest that there was any foreign influence it's it's just taboo to talk about even comparisons often it's you're not supposed to do that for very very good reasons right Germans just don't want to deny their responsibility so so there's resistance in germany to looking at these sorts of issues mm-hmm. so there's there's one notorious german scholar who's you know universally detested far right wing scholar who insisted that hitler was inspired by stalin Not true. It's not true. But he also, in some of his earlier writings, said, and you know what? He was probably inspired by the US too, but then he kind of dropped it because he was anti communist and wanted to say it was all Stalin, it was all Stalin. But a little bit he had said, you know, if we looked, I bet we would find stuff on the American side of these things, but then he kind of did. That's a long answer to your question. I hope I'm not. uh...
2: No, I I think that's exactly. I mean, I kind of wanted to dig into the first part of that answer, (laughs) which is that people don't want to think that america could have influenced or inspired or been some source for nazi intellectual approach to all of this and i mean do you think that even on the scholarly level scholars were saying ah no i don't want to draw that connection because that's a that's a truth i don't want to face that possibly we inspired these things
1: i mean i don't know I, you know part of it has to do with your very opening question that both of you were asking you know are you afraid of being attacked if you say things like this. I mean, you know, you you can't publish this stuff without stealing yourself for not just criticism, but sometimes, you know, really violent criticism. Now, as it happens, I haven't received that. Mm-hmm. I really thought that I was going to take it in the jaw, but it hasn't happened that way. So I would, but you know, it's entirely understandably to get up there and say, "Look, there's." I write a book called Hitler's American Model. Publisher didn't even want me to use the title. They said that's really kind of provocative, you know.
2: Well there's this implication that's really hard to stomach and and probably is not is is not what you're chasing but you know the next logical thing or the the thing that it evokes when you see that is we're not the Nazis we're not as bad as the Nazis what are you talking about it's like we're America I mean you know depends like, what you mean by not as bad I mean <laughs> <it>
1: was, <laughs> I, you know it was there, there were there were an awful lot of Black people, African-Americans lynched and murdered on the streets in the U.S., just like there were Jews lynched and murdered in Germany. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't have Auschwitz, right? We never had factories where you gassed people. I mean, I, you know, the Nazis took it to a totally different level in that respect. Uh, and, you know, you'd be crazy to think that the U.S. had done things quite like that. I mean, you know, there was really was a kind of a genocide of the Native American populations in the West. So, you know, people Americans used to be proud of. When I was a kid, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 60s now, so, uh, you know, things have changed. But, I mean, we played cowboys and Indians all the time, and we had we were taught manifest destiny in school. And, you know, mm-hmm. pe- people just didn't face what had been involved. And Hitler himself found that, as I say, quite inspiring. Hitler said in 1928, you know, that the Americans have made themselves the greatest power in the world, and the way they did it is that they they gunned down all the millions of Redskins. That's what they did, and we have to do the same thing. That's what the man said. Now, you know, a lot of people were, were gunned down. It still wasn't Auschwitz. So, you know, but boy, I mean, that that's not a very high standard to be holding yourself to, to say.
3: When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automated excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com.
0: I wanted to add, and this is gonna be overly reductive, to a professor of comparative law but <laughs> why is it and what is the mechanisms for for myself or chris to read your book and to see it from the formation of Nazi Germany and the Nuremberg laws and then now to shudder even like tenfold at how America acted in its past is it because we've been in this bubble and we don't we can't like see outside ourselves as american citizens growing up in sort of this very edited version of what we're allowed to believe in, because now it's hard for me to look at the past year in the same light, right? Because this is all based on stuff that's been woven into the very fabric of how we live.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what you say is exactly right. And you know, I don't have an easy answer to how how you or other Americans ought to deal with it, really. I mean, what, what you can say from a comparative perspective, speaking as somebody who spends a lot of time working on Europe and Germany, is that The Germans have made a concerted public effort to try to come to terms with the past. Mm -hmm. We've never done that in the United States. Now, you know, whether making a concerted public effort addresses all of your concerns, I, I don't know.
2: I mean, do you write a book like this, Professor, with a hope or intent that outside of the academic world, outside of the scholarly world, people like me and Dave are going to pick it up and say, like, Holy shit, <laughs> I didn't understand this about my own country. I have been shielded from this sort of historical perspective in the same way that scholars have. Is that part of it is that part of your intent for your average American to see something like this and be awoken to or awakened to this this notion so
1: yes and no." <laughs> 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 I mean, of course, I want people to see it. And it, as it turns out, the book has had a big resonance. I mean, people really have picked it up and read it and talked about it. So it did work out that way. I published it with a university press, right? I mean, I, I didn't go with a trade press. That meant that I was risking the thing which has vanished, because most university press books just don't hit the, the public yeah. consciousness all that much. I, I did that coming back to your, your earlier questions, partly because I wanted this was such an explosive topic. I wanted to be sure that I treated it in the most down the line academic way, peer review, check the footnotes, publish with the university press. And, and so the answer is yes, of course I want Americans to know about this and I tried to write it in a way that it would draw people in and, and force them to think about things. but I didn't want to just do a splash with the book because I thought in the long run that would undercut the impact of the book and, and diminish its value if I just stood up on the soapbox in the park and said, hear me.
0: At what point though, you know, and this is like a meta question, you know, you say that Germany is at least trying to address its past. At what point do, say, the laws of America, that the the abhorrent things that America has done, are they sort of, not forgiven per se, but addressed? Like, you know, for example, this seems like a weird way of address, like asking this question. I grew up thinking, I grew up in Northern Virginia, but all the textbooks were written in Richmond. And I grew up literally thinking Robert E. Lee was the greatest person ever to live. We oh. all wanted to be Robert E. Lee, right? It sounds crazy today, but that's literally what my textbooks told us right. and what we were taught. Only did I get to literally college, I think, in 1995, being like, wait, wait a second here. This isn't... This isn't, you know, what I was taught. And now you have statues of Robert Lee being taken down and whole universities changing their sort of names of the libraries and such. How does this get reconciled? What is it in our public conscience that allows us to deal with these things that were at one point right and accepted and now they're not right in a legal perspective?
1: So look, I mean, obviously the fundamental question its of course... A question, I think anyway, it's a question about how public culture evolves that I don't have any special insight into, you know. I'm just an American like everybody else. I read the papers and try to forget what I learned when I was in grade school. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but um, uh, you know, as far as the law goes, I mean, look, within the law, we have done important things. The civil rights movement really accomplished things. It really accomplished things and other, there have been other wonderful developments in America. You know, you, you just can't stand up there and say America has just been the garden of evil or something like that. It's much, much, much more complicated story than that. But, you know, the, within the law, the advantage of there are a couple of advantages. First of all, if you remember the history, it may help prevent backsliding. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you can see this with, you know, voting rights. The Supreme Court has cut back on voting rights. I mean, that's that's really, really bad. And it helps to be reminded why it was there in the first place. It really makes a difference. Uh, The other thing that you can learn, I think there are lessons to learn from this that are kind of technical legal lessons, but really, really important ones. You know, I don't want to take too much of your time or your your list of time, but I'll just say very briefly what the Nazis really liked about the American law above all was that the Americans used criminal law to pursue racist ends. Mm Mm-hmm. And the Americans were able to use criminal law to pursue racist ends for reasons that have to do with the way American criminal law is structured. But that hasn't changed too much, correct? Well, so it's a couple of things. I mean, obviously there's two questions you want to ask. Who gets targeted by criminal justice? And yeah, believe me, it's minorities in the US. But that's true in just about every country in the world, I've got to say. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's almost a universal. There are also questions though about how you think about the law, what the internal structure of the law is, and whether it permits you to use the law in, I'm not even going to say discriminatory, evil ways. And there are aspects of American criminal law that make it easier to use it in evil ways. But again, it gets us into technicalities. But I do think studying the history helps bring that home, helps remind us where the dangers lie in the way we do our law.
2: Can you speak to that in Germany at all? I mean, when you say that like, Germans have done a lot to reconcile or embrace or, or look at their past... Is their approach to teaching history or reading about history, is that part of it? Is that, like, what are we not doing here to sort of face our past? So, you know,
1: I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate. My I've lived in Germany lots. I'm not an expert on this question in particular. But yeah, first of all, so it took a while for the Germans to come to terms with the Nazi past. I mean, you know, throughout the 1950s, it wasn't so clear. And the coming to terms really took off after 1968. Mm-hmm. But it has really taken off since then. And what that's involved is, yes, certainly education, certainly education. So it's what's taught in the schools. Students are taken on school trips to Nazi sites. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, that kind of thing can backfire. You know, there are always going to be rebellious kids who decide, great, then I want to be on the far right wing because you're telling me not to do it. So, you know, but by and large, I think it's probably very effective. There are public monuments. There have been reparations to the Jews and to Israel, uh, which have very great symbolic value. There are also things that we would never consider in the United States. So after World War II, the German constitution, and German law banned anti-democratic parties. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a complication to how this is actually applied in practice. But, you know, you can't have a Nazi party in Germany.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No, I mean, there's a case to be made that we're now once again seeing the development, the emergence of an anti-democratic party in the United States. We don't know what to do about it. <laughs> and, you know, that would it would, it would also be hard in Germany. But, you know, so in that sense also, there are legal provisions which are specifically designed to guarantee that this won't happen again.
2: Yeah. You know, I, this, is, this is a dumb comparison. I, I think about this from time to time too, though, like, European football or soccer does so much to ban racism in the stands. Like, it's a concerted effort. If you yell something racist, like your team pays a fine. You can't have fans in the stadiums the next game. All of this sort of stuff. And to me, as an American, I see that and I'm like, I can't imagine a law of that sort here.
1: And you're not going to see one in the U.S. Anti-hate speech legislation is something that you're essentially never going to see in the U.S. It plays a very important role in European the way Europeans deal with these issues, the First Amendment, as we understand it in the United States, clearly makes it impossible ever to have anti-hate speech legislation in the U.S. Just your, you aren't yet.
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Like, do, do I mean just as an opinion? Do you? I mean, Cheng, I'm I'm curious to hear what you think too. Like, was that effective to be like you can't have hate speech?
0: Ineffective. I mean, this is just my opinion. How I view America, right? Like. I live in a world of analogies and metaphors, as you know, Chris, and sorry for this professor, but uh, like I think you need to have the First Amendment as it is, unfortunately, because it allows America to be the very best and the very fucking worst. Uh, And you just sort of see this with our COVID response. We're the very worst in the world, but we also were able to create the vaccine. And Mm -hmm. that's just America. It's very unique in that sense. And I think if you got rid of it, I don't know what happens, but it, it is, uh, you know, polar opposites simultaneously.
1: Well, so I, I use metaphors and analogies, too. I don't know why you're apologizing. <laughs> it, but, uh, <laughs> you're, you're a tenured professor at one of the most prestigious universities, and I'm a C-plus student. That would I'm trying to audit a class for free here.
2: <laughs> That's my
1: whole stock and trade if I can't use metaphors and analogies. I mean, look, you know, right. We, we, you could do a whole nother many, many podcasts on the first amendment. Your view is the standard American view. My, my view as a comparative lawyer is actually a lot like yours. And I think this is just the way America does things. That doesn't mean we have to embrace it without any reservations. I mean, you could, it's possible to look at something and say, this is a very American way of doing things. And really we could, you know, pull back a little bit at the <laughs> extremes. Um, but certainly the U S is never going to turn into Germany in that respect. Uh, There are a lot of other issues I'm I'm not talking about here, but the German government has repeatedly acknowledged Germany's responsibility for the Holocaust. Those are symbols, but I I think probably they're important ones and we haven't done it in the U.S.
2: Can we go back to something you said way back in the beginning of this, which was, you know, you pulled... Mein Kampf off the library shelf as the sort of starting place to, to look into this. I mean, I've never read Mein Kampf. I don't think most people have. we just sort well, of aware... Well, Chris.
0: I bet you a lot of people that are listening right now, they don't even know what Mein Kampf is.
2: <laughs> this is the reality. <laughs> professor? <laughs> so, I, mean, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. And this is part of, like, not looking at the past, but I mean, I'm, I'm going to let the professor explain Mein Kampf. <laughs> so, Me- mein
1: Kampf was Hitler's great work. Great in one sense of the word, not in every sense of the word, right? But <laughs> That, that he wrote when he was in a form of prison. I could tell you about that too, but in the mid 1920s after he attempted unsuccessfully a putsch. And it was as a kind of combination of autobiography and Nazi political speechifying and program making and theory of life and theory of the world. And it's turgid and awful and disgusting and, and one of the most influential books of the 20th century.
2: Well, that's exactly the tension I wanted to ask you about right there. It's turgid and awful, and one of the most important books of the twentieth century. Like, what do you what What is that? What is that like to be a a lawyer, a professor of comparative law, and to pull down Mein Kampf and try to look at it from a scholarly point of view? Like, do you are you able to separate that kind of <laughs> the feeling, the emotional feeling of reading this turgid, disgusting manifesto from oh shit, I'm I'm learning some interesting scholarly things here?
1: Yes. <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you you're there there are kind of two phases or two moments in what you're doing. First you try and get the facts right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And second you reflect on them and what their what their significance is. But yes, you have to start by getting the facts right.
2: Was just your field of interest like when how did you I mean, Dave asked you in the beginning, but you know, when you set out to write this, were you already interested in this aspect of comparative law, is this, is this is this your focus? Were you planning on doing this research? Did you have suspicions of this connection? Or, you know, I'm, I was basically just asking about your kind of general field of interest when it comes to comparative law.
1: And I appreciate it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've written about many, many different things. But I mean, this grew out of my interest in one question in particular, which is a big comparative law question, which is why human dignity plays such a large role in European law and doesn't play a role in
2: American law. Can you explain what that means a little bit more? Can you give us an example of of what what you mean there?
1: Oh, so for example, in the law of criminal punishment, there are human dignity principles which put very sharp limits on how criminal punishment can be carried out in Europe Mm -hmm. and are fundamentally important for explaining why European criminal punishment is so so much spectacularly less harsh than American criminal
2: hmm I mean, on a basic level, are we talking about, like, prisoners and how they're treated?
1: Prisoners and how they're treated, whether people go to prison at all. So I wrote a book about that a lot. So, you know, prisoners prisoners in German prisons must be addressed as Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so, and they wear their own clothing, and they're never behind bars. And there's all kinds of stuff that's meant to guarantee that they're treated respectfully and decently, which, in my view, plays a large role in in the relative mildness of their system. And, and in different ways, the same is true elsewhere in Europe. There's that, or, you know, for example, privacy law is understood as an aspect of human dignity in Europe, whereas it's not in the United States. So this just runs through what it is that makes our law different from the law of countries that otherwise economically look a lot like ours. And the question is, why? How come they have this? So I've written a lot about that over the years. That involves, in part, talking about the Nazis, but many, many other aspects. And a lot of them just have to do with how you develop a different idea of in societies of who should be on the top and who should be on the bottom, and, and how you keep the people on the bottom on the bottom. So it's very closely related to the sorts of things that produce Jim Crow and other American aspects of American race law, and then on the Nazi side produced Nazi race law as well. So th- that's what got me into the, into the subject.
0: Professor, is there, in today's worldview, whether it's Germany or other countries in Europe, How are they, are they studying American legal systems today to sort of do or don't follow, you know, like, is it, is it a paradigm for success?
1: Sure. So what was true, uh, you mentioned briefly, and I'll mention it again, that what drew the Nazis to American law in particular is that, it, I think you even read a quote from my book, I was so flattered. I did, I did. <laughs> was, was that Americans were particularly good at coming up with innovative race law. I mean, Americans just were, America was a font of inventiveness when it came to coming up with new kinds of race law, which could seem inspiring to somebody like the Nazis. That's not just true of race law, though America generally is a font of inventiveness. So it's very much true, for example, of American contract law. For reasons I won't go into in any detail here, but so that, for example, it was possible to do biotech startups in the U.S. because American contract law made it possible when it wasn't possible to do biotech startups in Europe. And that was just because of the sheer creativity of American law. And as a result, Europeans and people in the world more broadly are often, for very good reason, very eager to look to things like American contract law. For the same reason the Nazis look to American race law, because it is a tremendously innovative country and law just as it is in other things and other productive aspects of life. So yeah, people definitely look to American law. I will say that there are two aspects to this, though. I mean, the Nazis were interested in American law, not just because of the inventiveness, but because of America's power, that America was the, the supreme power in the world and Hitler's Germany aspired to be the supreme power in the world, too. That's still true today. People look at the U.S. and say, here's the largest economy. People are rich, 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 rich. We don't know exactly what it is the Americans are doing. But whatever it is, it sure looks like it's making them rich. So we want to try to do it, too. And to that extent, it, it's not the sort of rational, carefully thought through decision to borrow an American legal innovation. It's just the idea that Americans are rich. So we want to be like them. And that means we'll borrow their law, whatever it is. You see a lot of that in the world, too. Do
0: you think that moving forward, that as China becomes the superpower and preeminent economy, are countries going to start adopting Chinese laws and
1: policies? I mean, we'll see. Some are already. That is, you know, what's, what, what we all used to think in the early 1990s and before, which is that economic success and liberaliz- political liberalization and other forms of liberalization necessarily went hand in hand no longer seems so clearly the case. Hmm. And in parts of the world in which people are receptive to having non-liberal forms of political order, yeah, of course they're looking to the Chinese model. It has to be said, you know, it has never, that in a sense predates the Chinese model. So, you know, people would look to Singapore as an example of a non or relatively non-liberal order in some respects that gave rise to economic success. So you can see people, you know, but... But the current Chinese Communist Party model is goes way beyond anything you ever saw in Singapore. But yeah, of course it's having an influence. Of course it's having an influence, particularly in countries where people are looking for excuses anyway to abandon liberal practices in government.
2: People are always looking for that excuse. Uh, this is just going to sound so basic, but you know, as we're having this conversation with you, and I'm thinking about it in the context of this podcast, which 98% of the time revolves around questions of culture and and food. It occurs to me like the, the thing that jumps out to me about your book, about this conversation we're having, is just the idea of America's place in the in the wider world, whether that means, you know, comparative law or cuisine or whatever, I think that there is a pervasive notion, and maybe, maybe you're not aware of this as somebody who who's always thinking about a law outside of America, but I think that generally Americans, you know, like Dave said, don't know what mind Kampf is or don't really think of America as being engaged with what has happened elsewhere or what's going on elsewhere—we're our own little island. We're we do our own thing. We're a different planet.
1: That is too true of ordinary Americans.
2: <laughs> I mean, now by contrast,
1: elite Americans—if it's a fair distinction—you know, ordinary versus elite is a very dangerous way of talking about society, of course. But sure. But you know, the power brokers or whatever. I mean, the the high-powered lawyers. Have been very much interested in exporting American law to the rest of the world, especially since 1945. Hmm. And and that's both on the you know conservative side and on the liberal side. So especially since 1990, once again, we got what was called the Washington Consensus, which was an idea of exporting American free market norms to all the rest of the world and make you know, forcing everybody through the World Bank or whatever to run their economy and their legal system the way we do in the United States. It's also true at the same time of American idea of human, the American ideas of human rights and so on and so forth, and of our constitution. Its supposed superiority. There have been a lot of elite Americans interested in getting everybody to be just like America since forty five.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In both of those respects, I will say that I'm a skeptic about both of those myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, the ordinary Americans—I don't know. Yeah, they just want to—they just want to put you know food on the table and.
2: Yeah, I mean I characterize myself as part of that. You know, I, I guess what I'm saying is like it's I, I'm not trying to say I'm more engaged or anything. I, that was the that was the shocking thing. I think for both Dave and myself reading this book, like, oh no, Nazism, that was an isolated thing that happened over there. And, you know, we we swooped in and brought that good old American spirit and fixed fixed everything. Like that that was the big revelation for me as one of those sort of ordinary Americans. It's like, I don't oh, know, man. I mean, I read the book and I just Stephen Miller's
0: image just kept on popping in my head like every other page uh, really did um, Oh god i mean professor I, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast and speaking to two uh over uh i don't know industrious listeners that wanted to get a better insight into uh, your book and and maybe you know chris could have gotten into yale i definitely couldn't have gotten into yale so i, I appreciate the time but uh for the listeners that are like, wow, I didn't think I was going to learn about any of this stuff because I usually talk about culture of food. Are you someone that eats pizza in New Haven on, on a regular? Are you a um, Sally's or a Pepe's person or a modern, a pizza? Or, so um, I, I married
1: a woman with a gluten intolerance. Oh, so, you know, that just puts severe culinary restrictions on everyday doing some life. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> wow. So no, so, no, no, no New Haven pizza. Uh, well, among other things, I live in New York, but, but, but in any case, yeah, I'm afraid not. I will say that my it was never my colleague, but Robert Bork, the famous non Supreme Court Justice who taught at Yale, said, "If you like pizza, New Haven is the Athens of America." He said, so. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one you really should have asked. But.
0: Well, again. I appreciate you coming on and uh, thank you for writing this book and thank you for opening our eyes to some things that I certainly was not aware of.
1: My pleasure. And thank you so much for the, for the podcast.
0: Well, that was a conversation with Professor Whitman. Hitler's American model, the United States and the making of Nazi race law didn't realize some of the, the truths that he writes about and studies and it's all in this book, and it's all quite terrifying. And I think when you looked at what happened today, it, it is a reminder that we've come far in some ways and not so far in others. And uh, the world is a crazy place these days. But um, you know, stay tuned for another podcast uh, next week, and uh, stay safe, everybody.